Um, this event is being webcast and recorded, so uh, anything that you say or do in this room will be uh, affixed to posterity. Uh, so just keep that in mind. And I don't think that there's any other housekeeping tips. Just don't forget to clean up your trash when you're done. We always appreciate that because it makes the lives of our custodians so much easier. Um, but uh, thank you so much for coming today. Uh, I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, David Evan Harris. Um, he and I have been friends since, I want to say, 2000, the year 2000. Um, <laughs> uh, we met um, when we were both you know, college students, and uh, David told me about this idea he had to do a video documentary, an experimental kind of video documentary that follows um, somebody in their, their life for an entire day, uh, where the camera doesn't cut, uh, where you get to see somebody's complete daily life um, in all its excitement and mundanity. Um, exposed. And I was like, oh, that sounds like an interesting idea. Wow, what a cool idea. Um, and then uh, I forgot about it for about three years, and then he called me up after I uh, finished a job um, as a documentarian and told me, you know that idea that we were talking about? I think I actually want to do it. Um, and I heard you have a camera, uh, so why don't we do this? Um, so we shot the first of what is now 20 uh, video pieces for this expanding library uh, of Global Lives um, with a guy named James who is a trolley car operator in San Francisco. We followed around on his trolley car, on his surfboard, um, on, at, in a convertible for a while, <laughs> uh, for 24 hours, and it was, it was a, a, a blast and very, very interesting um, uh, for me as a producer. Um, but in the context of this project, um, extremely interesting in how it exposes and compares um, different the different ways people live their lives. So um, I'm very excited for him to introduce his work to you all. Um, just wanted to share some information about, about him outside Global Lives. He's the founder and executive director of the Global Lives Project. He's the chancellor's public scholar at UC Berkeley and research director at the Institute for the Future. Um, and uh, with that, I'll uh, let you take it away, David. Thank you so much, Jan. Um, it's, uh, it's such an honor to be here. I, I think this is actually my third lunch with, uh, with the Berkman, what was the Berkman Center, now the Berkman Klein Center. And I think at the first one, there were about five people. And this was quite a while ago, I, I think maybe close to a decade ago. And at the second one, there were maybe a dozen people. And I was expecting something like that today. <laughs> so this is amazing and, and an honor that so many of you have taken time out of your day to, to join. And you know what, what Dan, when, well, let's see. Uh, firstly, I'm curious uh, how, who all of you are and how, how you ended up here. I know, uh, I know there must be, who, who is associated with in some formal way with the Berkman Klein Center? Okay, great. And the law school? And what other departments at Harvard are, are represented here? Just shout it out. What's that? Government. Government, okay. Other Harvard departments? Yeah. Library. 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 Oh, great. Oh, yes. That's fantastic. I love libraries and librarians. Um, and uh, any, other, any other departments at Harvard? And I heard maybe there's someone here from MIT. Anyone? Yes, one. We've, oh, just one MIT. And what else? What other institutions do we have in the room or that I'm not aware of? Maybe there's just people. Just people. Wow. Wow, and what, uh, yeah, how, how would you uh, identify your, your person? 
Okay. <laughs> Just people. That's great. And I know we have uh, my study abroad program represented, the International Honors Program here. Joan, thank you for joining. Um, any, anyone else want to share how they, how they found out about this or, or what, what brought you here? BostonScienceLectures.com. Wow. Not specifically for this one, but um, <laughs> Okay. That's great. Who, who else? How else did you get here? I'm retired. I used to be the executive director of Tor. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. What an illustrious audience here. So thank you. Thank you so much again for taking time out of your day. So what Dan didn't mention in the, in the story about how we got started was that uh, I also told about 100, maybe 200 other people about this idea that I had to record 24 hours in the lives of people from all over the world. And all of them thought I was crazy at that time. And so Dan was uh, incredible in that he was the first person who actually knew how to hold a video camera who said, yes, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's actually try and do that. And so Dan really made all of this possible. So I actually have a background in sociology. I, I have a master's degree from uh, the University of Sao Paulo. And I'm, I belong to this school of reflexive sociology. Do we have any sociologists in the room? No, not a one. Oh, one. OK, great. Uh, so you know, as a reflexive sociologist, I shun the notion of objectivity. And I believe that we all bring biases to our, our work, to our scholarship, to our artistic and intellectual production of all kinds. And as such, I often like to disclose the biases that make me who I am and, and brought me into this work. So uh, one of those is this institution. This is actually where I was born. This is Stanford University Hospital. And I grew up in Silicon Valley. I actually attended Mountain View High School. I graduated from Mountain View High School in 1999, incidentally, the same year that Google moved its headquarters to Mountain View. And the town wasn't big enough for the two of us, so I went running to a land far, far away, culturally, intellectually, politically, but only an hour's drive, uh, which is Berkeley. And uh, some of you may be familiar with the, the, the differences in culture across this small geographical uh, trajectory. At Berkeley, I enjoyed activism, I enjoyed being part of, uh, of social movements on campus, and I really found it uh, just an, an incredible experience. And I also think that sometimes people undersell this one link between Berkeley and Silicon Valley, which is this, uh, what, what you might call in Silicon Valley, entrepreneurial zeal, what you might call in Berkeley, activist spirit. Uh, what, what Gandhi might call the desire to be the change you want to see in the world. In Silicon Valley, sometimes it's described as, you know, changing the world by making the next app or by making it easier to be two clicks away from something that was four clicks away. Uh, in Berkeley, it's often about starting revolutions. And I do think, though, that, that that desire for agency, that need for agency, is something that was impressed upon me, uh, both growing up in Silicon Valley and in Berkeley, and drew me eventually to end up at this place. I did an internship when I was a sophomore in college at the White House. This was the Clinton administration. I was there for the last five months in the Council on Environmental Quality and the Office of Management and Budget. And it was an exciting time to, to be there. You know, these last five, six months of, of presidential administrations 
can be times of trying to get a whole lot of stuff done. Uh, and pretty much everything I worked on was reversed by the Bush administration. And, uh, and that experience was also valuable because I saw, I saw something that I didn't expect to see. You know, I had read Al Gore's books before I joined the Clinton administration. I was really passionate about climate change. And I, I really wanted to make a difference on climate change. And I contributed to a number of different reports and speeches uh, that were eventually given by the president. And one thing that I saw was that, that Bill Clinton actually ad-libbed in a speech that I had helped write. There were, there were a lot of debates between the advisors about how strong Bill Clinton's language could be on climate change. And, and there was the push from the Council on Economic Advisors to not go too far. And there was a, a political tactic of we don't want to you know, anger certain senators. But then during the speech, Bill Clinton gave a much, much stronger position than what was written. And, and for me, that was enough evidence to see that he actually cared more about climate change personally from the gut when ad-libbing. And we all know that you learn a lot when you hear a president ad-libbing, right? Uh, you learn what they really think. <laughs> um, and he cared more about it than, he, than his advisors would let him say publicly. And he couldn't get meaningful legislation passed in, in, you know, in the course or meaningful executive orders passed, meaningful rulemakings passed that made a, an impact on climate change. He could, not, he could not meaningfully sign a binding international agreement on climate change, which we still are not a part of uh, in, the, in the United States. And so for me, that was a signal that political change was really, was really challenging and that cultural change perhaps could be a place that I could work to generate the political will necessary for even well-meaning leaders to make differences. And I also had this amazing opportunity when I was in, in college, my junior year, to study abroad. And uh, again, Joan, the director of the International Honors Program, Joan Tiffany is here with us. And in that, in that year, in my junior year, I actually went to five different countries. I went to Tanzania, India, the Philippines, Mexico, and the UK. And while I was living in those countries, I got the chance to live in a bamboo house in the Philippines. I lived in a former squatter settlement in Mexico City. I lived in a mansion in New Delhi with five servants. And these daily experiences that I shared of, of these people and these families from around the world left a really big mark and an impression on me. And I went back to Berkeley, and then as soon as I graduated, I tried to get even further away, and I, I moved to Sao Paulo. This is the University of Sao Paulo, and this is where I studied sociology. I lived in Sao Paulo for about three years. And this is where I actually really got my start on the Global Lives Project. And I, I actually did the first shoot with Dan back in 2004, uh, and I moved later that year to, to Sao Paulo, did the second shoot there. And after I had been living in Sao Paulo for three years, I got a call from someone at this place. This is actually back in Palo Alto, uh, you know, less than a mile from where I was born. This is the Institute for the Future. And this is actually a fashion show called The Apocalypse Project that I helped organize. And it's a, it's a Filipina artist who designed this line of, uh, of fashion, accessories, clothing, perfumes, uh, jewelry, all around building awareness of climate change, which I thought was brilliant. I was lucky enough to be able to bring her, her show and, and curate it at the Gallery for the Future, the Institute for the Future. And the Institute for the Future ended up being a great home for me for the last 10 years to, to work on this. I've also been lucky enough to do research that uh, I'm currently working on on a topic I call leapfrog democracy. 
I had a, a great meeting yesterday with David Weinberger, and we were talking about this idea. And he, he suggested that I could better describe this concept where I'm studying innovation in smaller and younger democracies rather than leapfrog democracies as shithole democracies. And um, I thought that was, uh, that was actually a genius touch. And I, I think I might change the, the topic of what I'm doing. But uh, you know, this is something I'm really interested in, is how innovations in the practice of democracy can come from unexpected places and, and not always from places like Silicon Valley or, or Cambridge or from Washington, D.C. Another topic I work on is the future of philanthropy. I've been lucky to work with a handful of foundations in, in Silicon Valley and elsewhere uh, in this work. And I also teach at UC Berkeley. So I teach four classes, which people have told me I'm crazy for teaching four classes. Um, and, uh, but they are uh, civic technology, social movements, and social media, scenario planning and futures thinking, and I just picked up a new one called International Business Development, where I actually uh, I mentor students that go to other countries and do consulting projects, mainly with nonprofit organizations. So that's, that's a little bit about me and, and where I come from and, and what, I'm, what I'm bringing here. So I wanted to also show you this trailer of Lives in Transit, which is the new series from Global Lives that is also on display right now at the Harvard Science Center. And I'm hoping I'll have sound here now. So this was, again, uh, as you saw there, premiered at Lincoln Center for the New York Film Festival at the end of 2016. It's also being exhibited currently at UC Berkeley. We did our first uh, three-location exhibit on a, on a single campus. It, it, it ran at the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive for most of last semester, and it's still currently running at the Hearst Museum of Anthropology and the Citrus Tech Museum, all on the Berkeley campus. And, uh, and so now it's actually still in three locations, but one of them is here at the Harvard Science Center. And it's just been, it's been so thrilling to be able to take this exhibit and, uh, around, around the country, and, and hopefully it will soon be seen in other countries where it was produced and, and elsewhere. Lives in Transit features 24 hours in the daily lives of 10 transportation workers from all over the world. And that was inspired, actually, that theme by James, the cable car driver in San Francisco, who was the first person who we ever recorded. And I think I'll back up and take you to some of the questions that we've been asking with Global Lives since pretty early on. So one, one of these underlying questions is, what could global empathy look like? What, what would it really mean if empathy existed at a global scale. Another big one. What are the boundaries of your moral universe? Where does your morality start? You know, for most people, it starts you know, in, the, in the home, with the family, with your local community. And where does it end, or where does it start to fade? You know, does it fade at the, at the borders of your state? 
Does it fade when you're at a football game fighting against a team from another geography? Does it, does it fade when you think about people in other countries or other parts of the world or people of other religions or other nationalities? So one question I ask a lot of audiences that I speak to is if anyone has an idea of how many Iraqis died in the war with Iraq between 2003 and 2011. And, uh, and actually, some of the research, some of the best research on this was produced at, at MIT. Um, does anyone have any idea no, number of Iraqis that died as a result of the war, 2003 to 2011? Yeah. 600,000. 600, Two million. Um, so some of the studies do and some don't, but sure, let's say including sanctions. Wow, yeah. Other, other numbers? So I've, I've given talks about this where I've had differences in, in orders of magnitude, and you know, just in this, in this room we're talking about uh, from 600,000 to uh, three to six million. Obviously, there are different methods there. This is obviously, you know, a, a war that has happened during all of our lifetimes. And just the, the fact that we, as a group of people here at Harvard, might disagree by an order of magnitude about how many people died as a result of this war that many of us paid tax dollars, myself included, to finance is, is a sign to me that our media and our our leaders, our, our politicians, our journalists are, are unable to present life around the world in a way that it is represented with equal value. So, you know, this is one, one, of, the, one of the more mainstream studies has half a million. But again, these studies range. And, and to me, that fact that we, we just don't know and, and, and we're sitting here and we're alive and the technologies we have at our fingertips don't tell us is a sign that we need to really think deeply about the value of human life. And you know, as we continue to engage in the longest war we've ever been in as a country, I think that's ever more important. So what Global Lives is about is really getting people to step out of their worlds, to step into the daily life of another person that you otherwise never could have known. So this is a picture of our uh, our first big exhibit at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in 2010. You can't quite tell from this image here, but there are a thousand people in this room. And this is the same room that Steve Jobs used to rent out when he wanted to launch a new iPhone or an iPad. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty spectacular venue. Each of those screens is 12 feet diagonal. And uh, this is just one of the many exhibits that we've done since 2010. So this is a, an animation that's actually um, now demonstrates a myopic understanding of gender, but I think it's still worth uh, showing, and you'll understand why in a second. The Global Lives Project set out to document 24 hours in the daily life of 10 people who roughly represent the diversity of humanity. From the most intimate to the most mundane moments, our crews patiently watched turning themselves over to the pace and rhythms of lives not their own. Geography. 61% of the world's population lives in Asia, so we selected six Asians and one person each from the other four major world regions, North America, South America, Africa, and Europe. We also learned that more than half of the world lives in cities, so we chose five urban and five rural people. Income. 
we conducted detailed economic research to select 10 people whose earnings roughly represent global income distribution. Gender, half men, half women. Religion, the actual religious distribution of the planet. Age, the actual age distribution of the planet. Six of the 10 people are under 30 years old. So, uh, so this was actually about 10 years old, this, uh, this diagram, this animation. Uh, after we finished these first 10 shoots, and we did that exhibit at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, we got together a lot of the filmmakers who had worked on those shoots, and we had a conversation about what we wanted to do next. And in that room, there, um, you know, it was a room full of filmmakers, and what do filmmakers want to do? They want to make more films, and so we, uh, we decided to make more, and that was where the idea of doing the Lives in Transit series was born. And the problem was with lives in transit. Well, we, you know, this whole methodology, this all these calculations uh, were really done based on the idea of picking ten people. So, what would we do to pick ten more people? And that's where this spreadsheet came from. And uh, the idea of the of the spreadsheet was to figure out um, what we could do to actually add more diversity and also add more what we called representativity to the overall global lives library of daily life. And so we created, actually, you can see at the bottom there, um, there are a bunch of different tabs here. So there's this summary, but there's also geography. So we did, uh, and then by states and by subdivisions in different parts of the world, we looked at age, languages, language families. Um, we also, you can't see it, but we looked at uh, religion as well here. We looked at population density. So just to give you an idea of, uh, of how this worked, we would put in the number of people that we'd have from, uh, from a certain country in this, and then the, the green would say, uh, good to go, do another shoot there, or do a shoot there. And it would turn red here if the score was uh, too high, which meant we were overrepresented in that place. And the overrepresentation could be in terms of a country, it could be in terms of, um, you know, in terms of any of these criteria, a language or an, an age category. And, you know, this was, so, uh, you know, a solution that I thought could take us pretty far. And since this is a, a some of you are a, a technology crowd, um, does anyone know what simulated annealing is in the room? No. Okay. Yes. One. One person. Can you explain it succinctly? Scheduling. Actually, one of my colleagues uh, used it in one of our. Uh, software packages, but um, beyond that, I don't. I only know that it's uh, approximates a, a good solution to a scheduling problem. Given that most scheduling problems um, will take a long time to fix by a computer, unless you make some assumptions, um, and that's what submitted anything for. Yeah, I don't know the exact details of the algorithm. No, that's th thank you. That's really helpful. Uh, so yeah, so I I knew um, I know a guy. He's one of our uh, longtime friends, advisors to Global Lives. His name's Lauren Carpenter, and some of you might be familiar with his work. He's uh, known as one of the um, pioneers of computer graphics, and uh, and he actually is credited with inventing RenderMan, which is the software that Pixar uses to make movies. And so I actually asked Lauren. I said, "We have this problem, Lauren. We need to we need to pick the eleventh person." and then we might 
might need to pick the 21st person at some point. Uh, what should we do? And Lauren said, oh, this is really easy. You just need to create a million cell by million cell seven-dimensional matrix. And in that seven-dimensional matrix, for each of the criteria that you're trying to optimize for, we will plot the point in the matrix that is most distant from all of the other existing points in the matrix. And therefore, we'll be able to add to the uh, maximize the diversity of all of the people in the Global Lives Collection. And so that was kind of a mouthful. But that, that was, Lauren inspired this spreadsheet, and then he actually has started coding uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the tools that would allow us to go even further than this. So that's a, a work in progress. But um, that is all to say, there's, there's some math involved here. So this is a timeline of what we've, uh, what we've done so far. Um, this is actually a little bit out of date, but these, this, this is actually in our impact report that you can download on our website. And uh, we've done dozens of exhibits in dozens of countries around the world. We've had screenings um, as well in, in even more places, many schools. Also, as Dan mentioned and I mentioned, we've now done uh, 20 24-hour shoots. Um, and a few years ago, I had this interesting meeting at this place. This is the Smithsonian Castle. And I got this chance to meet with some of the anthropologists at the Smithsonian. Do we have any anthropologists in the room? No. Oh, maybe anthropologists. Well, OK. So, um, so when I was at the Smithsonian, they, I was interested in, in doing an exhibit there. And I showed them this document that we had actually put together. This is our production guide that tells you how to do a 24-hour global lives shoot. And this was actually put together after we decided to do the Lives in Transit series, but before we started shooting. We just had a team of volunteers who worked at Adobe, the company that makes Photoshop, that put together this guide by interviewing filmmakers and crew members on all of our first 10 shoots to figure out what went well and what could have gone better. And so they put together this table of contents, the you know uh, what to do pre-production, how to prepare for the day of production, what uh, equipment you need to do all of this. I showed this to the anthropologist at the Smithsonian, and, and I, I was thinking I was showing up there as kind of a lapsed sociologist who was acting more as an artist. And they said, oh my gosh, this is, this is your methodology. This is amazing. This is uh, you know, an ethnographic tool. And, uh, and to me, that was an exciting moment because I had never really thought of this as uh, you know, a legitimate exercise in the social sciences, even though I myself obviously had that training in the social sciences. But uh, you might know if you're in, this, in the social sciences, uh, maybe not here, because Harvard is the home of the sensory ethnography lab, but doing uh, media work as a, as a social scientist can be challenging because the expectations for, uh, you know, for getting a PhD, for getting tenure are mostly around single author written works. And, uh, and you don't get that far with video installations. So, um, that, that was exciting for me and that, ended up leading to a series of, uh, of collaborations with the Smithsonian. We've done a screening there uh, of some of the earlier work, and we're actually planning another screening later this year of the Lives in Transit series. So the website is another big part of what we've done with Global Lives. Initially, our website actually was uh, set up by one of Dan's friends who worked at AOL at the time. AOL or Yahoo. Um, so we, had, we found someone who knew how to make a website. And, uh, and he, he did it. And at first, it was brochureware. Uh, and it was just you know, around promoting what we were trying to do and, and the ex idea of the exhibits. Uh, but eventually, we found that the website, or I, I found that the website could be a potentially an artistic medium in and of itself, a, a venue, as it were, that uh, would be different from seeing this in a museum, but, uh, but perhaps different in a good way. And we actually pitched this idea to 
the National Endowment for the Arts and was able to get some pretty decent funding from the NEA to build this website and also a lot of support from a, excuse me, a design firm in San Francisco called Method that did all of the user experience research and put together the design for the site. So the site allows you to view this collection by uh, through a grid or through a map that will help you to navigate your way through these people's lives. You can watch all 24 hours of their lives and actually this over the course of this year we'll be releasing the lives in transit videos on the website also on social media as well. And uh, these are these are a few other exhibits just to give you a sense of what the exhibits looks lo look like and actually uh, so this is at Google headquarters in Mountain View, and there was um, we had a Google employee on our board of directors who really wanted to bring it there and show it to her coworkers. And then uh, we were lucky enough to have a Google employee from New York come and see the exhibit, and he decided that he wanted it to come to New York. And so this is actually these are the same TV screens that are at the Harvard Science Center right now, and uh, and that exhibit. Um, will run again through uh, through March 15th and may possibly be extended beyond that. These uh, Those screens went from the Google office in New York to Lincoln Center, but they've also, uh, we've also had exhibits in, in other kinds of venues. This is actually a charter high school in Oakland, California. Um, it's called the Envision Academy. And, uh, and when, we, when we set these up in high schools, we often leave them for a week or a month or a few months, and it gives the students uh, a chance, and same with the Harvard students, a chance to really live with the people in the exhibits and get to share their daily experiences as they are going through their own daily lives. And I actually really like this exhibit format um, in, in some ways better than a museum because you have people that come back over and over again and see different parts of the day of all these people. These are some students talking about it. The idea for actually building an education curriculum though came from this conference. So this is the National Teachers Association of Indonesia. Uh, conference and one of our producers in Indonesia went and spoke about Global Lives at this conference and said uh, and said that she got a great response and actually the teachers who were in this session composed a, a document and sent it to me and they said these are all the different types of classrooms, subjects, age ranges that we think Global Lives would be useful as an educational tool for. And, uh, and, th and that was a pretty big sign for me that we needed to do something. So. Um, so we, we started taking it more seriously. So these are some more schools. These are schools in China, uh, in Anren, where we did a shoot that we showed the videos in. This is in Indonesia. This is a high school in Singapore. It's a middle school in San Francisco. And as we were doing these exhibits, we realized that we needed a formal curriculum. So this actually we developed in partnership with the Graduate School of Education at Stanford. And they actually teach a class there called Curriculum Design that's connected to their International and Comparative Education program. And the students at Stanford were actually the first people who told me that empathy uh, is, was at the core of what we, what we should be talking about in schools with Global Lives. And, uh, some of you might be aware that empathy is, is on an upward rise in terms of uh, academic study of empathy and public discourse about empathy, empathy as a, a topic for um, secondary education and, uh, and primary education. So the Stanford students wrote this curriculum. You can now buy it on Amazon.com. And it's 64 pages. And it's uh, designed for middle school and high school. 
and it's aligned to the Common Core standards, so it's designed to be something that you can really uh, drop into a middle school or high school class. And we've been working on doing some adaptations both for college and for uh, workplace trainings as well. So these are some of the early results from a survey, a small survey that we did at the exhibit we ran at Palo Alto High School. So 44% uh, of students surveyed after the program indicated that they feel protective of someone who's being taken advantage of compared to 29% before. 30% uh, reported that they speak up when they witness something they consider wrong compared to 15% before. 26% indicated that they take interest in community and world issues and often seek solutions compared to 8% before. 37% felt they can make a positive difference in the world compared to 21% before. So these are all, for me, pretty strong indications, a small sample size, that there are some real valuable educational outcomes that can be had through using this curriculum and also through bringing these exhibits to schools. This has always made me a little bit uncomfortable because uh, you know, I thought about this first and foremost as an artistic experiment. And I did not think about it as a, an educational program. And I think if you asked a, a painter or a sculptor to uh, submit themselves to a rigorous uh, quantification of the impact of their work, they might feel uh, insulted by that or, uh, or, or question it. And you know, in the art world, though, there are other metrics. There are visitors to museums, and there's the sale price of your, of your last work, right? Uh, so again, it's, it's been an interesting journey for me. Uh, this has been part artistic endeavor, part managing a nonprofit organization. We, we became a 501c3 nonprofit in 2007, three years after the first shoot, because I realized that to get the grants that we needed to, to do this work, we would need to be formalized in that way. And, um, and you know, it's been equal parts uh, exercise in social sciences, technology, and now we've been exhibited in museums of anthropology, museums of art, museums of technology, and, uh, and museums of science. So I'm, I'm still not sure what this is that, uh, that I've been working on for now. 15 years, um, and I think one, one good way to give you another taste of it, well, let's see, maybe I should, I was gonna show a video, I won't show the video now, I think we should probably wrap up. So, this is a picture of the exhibit at the Science Center. I'm just curious, how many of you have seen the exhibit in the Science Center already? Okay, great, wow, and, and, uh, and we have Matthew Battles in the back who I should call out who actually helped Dan build the exhibit in the Science Center, and, and Dan who I should also call out who generously at the end of the Lincoln Center exhibit, uh, the Lincoln Center exhibit I should say happened just a couple months after uh, my wife gave birth to our twins, and uh, so that was a very hard thing for me to plan, and, uh, and, and as it was wrapping up I was rushing home and I said, oh no, I don't know what to do with these screens, uh, they're in New York and I don't know where to ship them, and Dan said, oh, just send them to my house. I'll find a place to exhibit them in Cambridge. So Dan kept that exhibit in his uh, basement for about a year before bringing it here to Harvard. So a uh, big thank you for making that happen. But and enjoy that exhibit again through March 15th. Um, and just uh, you know, some thoughts about next steps. We really want to expand this exhibit's program, bring it to more museums, more galleries, more universities like this one. I'm, I'm very open to suggestions or ideas if you have, have them for places that this exhibit could go next. We now have uh, two sets of eight TVs, one on the West Coast and one on the East Coast, and I'm, I'm looking for venues now. Uh, we also want to expand the curriculum decision, uh, the distribution through partnerships. We want to increase the sample size of the quantitative research and uh, add longitudinal measures. Again, that's mostly with teachers and students. And we really want to improve the website searchability uh, and the ability to navigate the content. So 
That's, uh, those are all of my, those are all of my slides. That's all I had prepared. I, I heard that this is an audience that sometimes has a lot of questions. So I like to open it up to you. And if you could say your, your name and if you, if you have any relationship with an institution that might be relevant, I'd love to hear that. I wanted to go around the room and actually get everyone's names and, and why they came here, but I was told that's no longer feasible in this, uh, this large of a room. But, um, but uh, please, love, any, any questions? I might take, oh, I'll save my question. Are there any countries where you tried to bring this and you weren't able to for some reason or another? Oh, that's a great question. Well, it was hard to do the shoot in China. Uh, so one thing I didn't mention is that uh, lawyers have contributed a lot to this project. Um, well, uh, Larry Lessig, who um, sadly is not here today, uh, has been a donor and actually advised me very early on about how to handle the Creative Commons licensing for all of this. Everything uh, that we produce is under Creative Commons licenses. And early on, after talking to, to um, Larry and Joey, they, they actually had me do an exhibit of Global Lives in 2008 at the Creative Commons. Uh, conference in Japan. Um, and I realized that this licensing stuff and the legal stuff was going to get really complicated. And so we, I, I, under, under the suggestion of, of Larry and Joey and others, we got a law firm. So we've been represented very generously by Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe for the last, gosh, more than 10 years. And they've, they, at one point I asked them to tell me how much all the legal services cost, and it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, because every time we go to a shoot in a new country, we need to translate all of our release forms. We need to get permission to be shooting in that country, and we need to figure out any kind of legal implications of exhibiting as well down the line. So uh, when we first went to shoot in China, I asked the lawyers at Oric and uh, what we should do, and they gave us some really great advice, and they actually got their Shanghai office involved, translated all the release forms, made a big sign that we put on a poster that we walked around with behind the camera saying, this is a video production in progress, explaining what Global Lives is and telling people that they were being filmed. Uh, another challenge was in, in Kazakhstan. I called up Oric and I said, you know, how are we going to get these, these release forms? And they, they said, oh, turns out we have two Kazakh attorneys in our London office, so they uh, helped us adapt, again, all of the legal uh, work for, uh, for Kazakhstan and, and translate into Russian. These are countries where we were able to shoot. We've, uh, so for the National Endowment for the Arts, there is a, or Oric told us we probably shouldn't shoot in Syria. And, um, and there are a few other countries on the list where, um, sorry, we shouldn't send money to Syria to get a shoot done. Uh, and we usually send uh, anywhere from $500 to $2,500 to help with the expenses for the local crews in, in all these places. So I was told not to send any money to, to Syria uh, to do a shoot there. It turned out that we had, um, and I think Iran was on that list. I think there were about, I think North Korea was on that list too, that I was not allowed to send money for productions. But the way we do these shoots is we actually put out calls for producers because we need a local producer on the ground to take the initiative to do the shoot. And, uh, and so we actually didn't receive any incoming proposals from those countries. So I never had to say, uh, no, we can't do this. Um, we did have a situation where in Senegal we wanted to do a shoot in the subway system there. And the crew members just said that the only way we were going to be able to do the shoot there was if we would uh, pay at least $1,000 in bribes to the subway authority. And that was a situation where we said, we can't pay $1,000 in bribes to the subway authority. So that, I guess we weren't able to do that. Yeah. Yes. 
Hi, I'm Kathy. I'm a Harvard Berkman Klein Fellow and also um, former White House as well. Um, I have a question about the empathy that you brought up. Yeah. Um, as you know, at least in in tech, um, the tech industry is really grappling with the products that it's it's built over maybe the past several decades or so, causing either unintentional harm or maybe intentional harm. I don't know. Um, do you see this project helping perhaps shape um, or using empathy somehow to really help shape how tech builds its products and really works for the users versus, you know, maybe causing some of the harm that it's it's done? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a fantastic question. And, you know, with Global Lives over the years, we've worked a lot with different tech companies that have, uh, you know, when you're in the Bay Area, you meet a lot of tech employees who want to volunteer their time and get involved with nonprofits. And... Yeah, I think there are, this is a, this is a really complex and important question. And, uh, this might be as good a time as any to say something. I actually just, um, gave notice at my job at Institute for the Future on Sunday and accepted a job that I never thought I would ever take in a million years. Uh, but I joined the, I agreed to join the civic engagement team at Facebook. So I will be addressing this very issue. And, uh, and the people at Facebook who invited me there were very familiar with my, Critical. I see Matthew Battles' eyeballs just exploded. Um, so, yeah. So the civic engagement team at Facebook is um, is the team that works on how people think about their relationship to their communities and their relationship to their elected officials. And uh, and you know, Facebook knows all about what I've been doing here. And I imagine the reason they wanted me was to bring some of what I learned into into that environment. So I hope so. Yeah, I really hope so. Otherwise, I'll be looking for a job in a couple of years. Sorry. Is there any follow-up with those that are a part of the videos? So yeah. Jim or... Yeah, whatever. absolutely. So James Bullock happens to live a few blocks away from me in San Francisco. And so he throws a um, what he calls the shed party every year uh, to celebrate the birthday of a shed that he built in his backyard. And um, you know, he's... These San Francisco people, um, right? So uh, he, so I, I see him most years there, and uh, and his wife makes ceramics, and sometimes I go to her ceramics shows. Uh, with the, we we rely a lot on the crews in other parts of the world to maintain the relationships with the people who appear in the videos. Uh, Rumi, the person who we recorded in Tokyo, I am actually Facebook friends with, and so and she often likes my posts and I like hers, and uh, you know with. Uh, the crew that did the shoot in, uh, in that we did in Lebanon, it was in the Shatila refugee camp, and the crew that did a shoot in rural Malawi. Uh, both of those crews ended up raising money after the shoots to help their the the people whose lives they recorded uh, go to school and get um, a better education than they otherwise wouldn't have. It, it was pretty clear in the case of the Malawi shoot that uh, that she would not have gone to high school, that her education would have ended at age 14, but the crew was able to raise money and allow for her to go to high school. So, uh, yeah, in, in, and uh, we try, we try to stay in touch with them, and then, you know, we have one goal, which is to eventually try to do exhibits in most of these different places and, uh, and show people what, um, you know, what they were a part of. And we haven't gotten to all of them yet, but I'm still working on that. Oh, how, how do, do we pick, pick the production, the production teams? Yeah, so uh, so for the Lives in Transit series, we uh, we got about fifty proposals to do ten shoots, and those proposals um, came from people uh, in you know a few dozen countries. And so the production committee, made up of people from 
all over uh, all of the previous crews, evaluates those proposals, and then makes a decision about how to uh, about which ones are the best. And the evaluation is done based on the quality of the work that the producer does, and um, and uh, you know the crew members making sure there are at least three good camera operators, and making sure that there's someone who understands sound, looking at the real or the previous work of the people in the group as well. Yeah. And I think there's so, one in the back next. Uh, I'm very interested in the, the in the issue of empathy, and what I think of is the reflection of it, which is the intro, the the issue of othering yes. people. Yeah. And uh, so, but I'm also interested that you had to go to all of these different cultures and explain your project, because different cultures have very different ideas. Oh yeah. About what empathy is and what othering is, so. How did you how did you find going to all these different cultures and try to explain the problem of trying to explain to youth in America what empathy was as a curriculum? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that's a gr that's a really great question, and you know in 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 all of these different places in the world, it's a, it's a different explanation. And some, one of the funny things is, in, in many of the shoots, there are moments on screen where someone uh, comes up to the person who is, uh, who is being followed, who is being recorded for 24 hours, and they ask them, why is someone videotaping you, right? And, um, and, and that's always an interesting thing to watch unfold in the process of, this, uh, in the process of their day. And so I, I just remember, you know, Rumi, um, talking about it in Japan, and she says uh, it's an American NGO, and uh, and that was interesting. Like to her, it she understood it as an NGO, and in and not necessarily as an as an art project, and and you know she talks about it as you know a, a way to share how other people live, and I think that you know it's a pretty. Uh, I, when I first started this, this was after I had traveled and come back to the U.S. Or, or was about to come back to the U.S. and I had this idea that we needed to, you know, shock these Americans out of their bubbles, basically. That was my thinking as an American. Then I moved to Brazil and I found that it was much easier for me to get Brazilians excited about this idea than it was for me to get Americans excited about it. And, and maybe that's because I was a novelty, the foreigner, the American who spoke Portuguese and was living in Brazil. I was just kind of also a weirdo there. Uh, but uh, but the, the energy from Brazilians. So in the US, after three years of telling people about the idea, I was only able to find Dan, who would start working on it with me. Uh, and Dan's amazing, of course. Um, but in Brazil, uh, we actually had to turn crew members down. There were, we got to a point where we had 20 people who wanted to be on this crew. And trust me, you don't, if, if you want to capture someone's day with any, anything like reminiscent of authenticity, you don't want 20 people on the crew. Uh, and, and so we ended up splitting the crew into three parts, crew A, B, and C, that take turns, and then they can rest. But, yeah, I think in Brazil it was extremely well received, and um, yeah, and we had lots of opportunities to you know to show the work in screenings, to talk about it, and to partner with other organizations. In Brazil, actually, was part of the reason it was really easy to explain is that we partnered with a group called the Museum of the Person, and the Museum of the Person in Sao Paulo is a museum of life stories, and so they just record uh, initially audio, now mostly video 
life stories, and now they've done thousands and thousands of people, everything from farmers to most of the, most or maybe all of the living past presidents of Brazil, uh, and, and they've done work in other parts of the world. They've, they also, a big project was Holocaust survivors living in Brazil. So uh, they were an amazing group, and, and they actually helped me to understand how, how to explain it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I saw your hand first, and then, oh, sorry, go ahead, yeah. Thank you for the fantastic presentation. I'm Ahmad. I'm a fellow at Berkman Klein Center. Thank you. You called for it because you put reflexive sociology yes. on the uh, board in your slides, and I'm an avid uh, uh, fan of Bourdieu. So I want to ask you a question. Don't see it as a criticism. I just want to Please. see it as a reflective question. So you imagine this uh, to uh, film the lives of the world and we discussed about it. But to what extent it is putting the people in the glass as an object to be seen, and how it could be different if you were, let's say, um, a young college student in Hyderabad in India, come up with the same idea, whether it would be feasible to do it, and whether the outcome could get anything close to what you created, and how different that would be. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question. So. There, are, I have a few answers, and I, I would love to talk about this with you for a few hours too. But uh, you know, one one thing that actually another friend that Dan brought into this um, was this idea. We in in the original uh, documents where we were writing about what Global Lives was, we were trying to figure out how to talk about the people who we record. And you know, there, in documentary, you often use the word subject to talk about a, a person, right? Um, but but this suggestion I got that we've gone with was to call them the on-screen participants to signify that by allowing this camera crew to have an interaction with you for 24 hours, you are actively participating in sharing your life with the world. To another part of your question, many of the crews that we've worked with uh, around the world, somewhere a little above half, are all people from whatever country they were doing their shoot in. And I, I also really wanted to make sure that I was not necessary at most of these shoots. So I actually only have been to three of the 20 locations where we've done the shoots. I really wanted to make sure that no one saw Global Lives as a pretense for me to travel around the world uh, with grant money and, and, and otherwise. And, I, and I've been really privileged to travel through my studies uh, and, and through scholarships anyways. Um, so you know, I've tried to work with local crews as much as possible. I've tried to empower local crews to, um, to do their own exhibits. That's something we're working on right now is producing a guide so that people can produce their own exhibits. And I think, you know, over and over, another interaction that I've had, and maybe this speaks to the last question too, is I meet people who were on a Global Lives crew or who want to join a Global Lives crew, and they say, I had an idea just like that. Like, I, like, I really wanted to do that exact same thing. And, or or I, I really want to do something really similar to that. And, and I'm so excited to be part of it. So, you know, for me, um, I, I, you know, I could go into this longer, but I, I don't subscribe to traditional notions of authorship. I don't believe that this is a, my authorial work. This is the work of a collective. That's why we use the Creative Commons licenses to distribute it. And, um, and, and that's why, you know, in every instance that I can, we try to give you know, credit to all of the, or as many of the authors as possible. So that's my first take at answering a, a, a deep existential question, but thank you for bringing that up. And I'll take, uh, I'll take any reading recommendations you have as well. Thank you.
Oh yes, thanks for the presentation. I, I really love the project. Uh, I have a question about uh, the curriculum and especially how you are approaching to this uh, kind of empathy in, in a global level and if you have tried to localize empathy because sometimes that's, is, that's even more difficult uh, than feeling empathy to, towards another that you cannot see closely, especially in places where you have like wars or like conflicts. Uh, and I think this curriculum could be very useful for those places. Uh, I, am a, I am originally from Colombia, mm. uh, and I am a fellow at the Berman Klein Center. And I thought, like, okay, this could be... You have a piece now that is happening in Colombia. I think it's in Cali, in this Lives in Transit. And yeah. I thought, like, okay, this could be used as an empathy kind of tool, but how do you localize that? What kind of strategies can you, do, can you use in the, your curriculum? Thank you. That's a really good question. So, I mean, one right now is we want to translate the curriculum, obviously. So that's a big help. We have done a lot of work to translate the short versions of each shoot. We, we produce a two to three minute short of each of the shoots. And that's what we're going to be showing at Smithsonian later this year. And, uh, and so those are subtitled in many, many languages, uh, at least a dozen for all of them. Uh, but yeah, that, that curriculum we're exploring translating right now. I have a student at, at Berkeley who I rely a lot on uh, this program at Berkeley called the Undergraduate Research Apprenticeship Program, um, where I get uh, undergrads that can contribute to, to global lives. Um, and I will be continuing to teach at Berkeley, I should say, going on, and uh, will be continuing to work on global lives going forward, too, in my, in my new incarnation. Uh, but um, the, the idea here is uh, that we might translate the curriculum first into Japanese. There's this you know, there's always this trade-off, like, do you do PDF or do you do rich and nice-looking HTML curriculum? PDF is nice because apparently teachers like to print things still, and HTML is nice because it's more searchable and easier to translate than a PDF. Um, so right now we've got PDF, but we might just try to do an HTML version of the whole curriculum that's easier to translate into other languages. And then, you know, the Common Core obviously doesn't apply in Colombia. Um, they have different curriculum standards, but we do have a partnership with this international network of schools called the United World College, and, uh, and there's actually someone who's exploring creating one in Colombia right now. And, you know, these international networks of schools, the International Baccalaureate Program is another group we've looked at collaborating with. But if you're interested, I'd love to, to talk more. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Yvonne Berkman Klein Center. Thank you. To what extent have you tried to measure impact based on exposure to the content or the exhibitions. Um, and a follow-up question to that, not a quick answer, I'm sure, is if you have, how do you measure empathy? Yeah, so I showed, you know, these four slides here um, are just four of the answers to the 18, or sorry, the four statistics on two slides. These are just four of about 18 questions. These questions were designed uh, by researchers at the Stanford Graduate School of Education to evaluate the effectiveness of the curriculum and the exhibits. And, uh, you know, the, the I've, I actually tried to give myself a little bit of distance from this. Um, I try to show up, when I show up at high schools, a little bit more as the filmmaker or the artist and not as the educator uh, for a number of reasons. I, you know, I, have been, I have been teaching at Berkeley for three years, but before that, I really wasn't an educator, and so I didn't want to get into that. And I've, uh, I also think that having um, me speak from a, a, an authentic position of creating a work of art that's meaningful to me uh, is maybe more valuable than me showing up and saying, 
I want to change your brain and make you be more empathetic, right? Like that, and there's literature about this uh, that you can't teach empathy, right? You can't like jam empathy down students' throats. Uh, you can you can maybe cultivate empathy. You can maybe foster empathy. So you know, I have I have a few board members who are just really passionate about the education program. And if you're really passionate about scaling any kind of educational offering, you need to be really passionate about metrics and assessment and evaluation. And it's just it's been an unnatural thing for me, but you know, even when you do, when you get a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, you still need metrics there. And you know, the advice I got from our, our uh, the head of media arts at the NEA was, uh, David, you need to show me more eyeballs. And and so she didn't want empathy down people's throats; she wanted more eyeballs. But um, you know, different parts of the head. Uh, and and that was interesting. So for the NEA, it's like audiences, but then it's also quotes and you know, testimonials and qualitative impact. And, and now we have a board member uh, who's also a grad student at Stanford. He's relatively recently joined, but he wants to do ethnographic research in classrooms that are using the curriculum. And he's trying to find funding for us to actually do that, just watch what happens in a classroom. And he wants to do ethnographic and longitudinal. And so follow up with people who say they were really affected with global lives and figure out, does that affect last pass lunch, right? Or does it last past the next year? Do they still remember global lives when they're in college? Do they still remember it when they're at their next job? So, you know, these are, these are really big questions and they're difficult questions for a nonprofit because you could spend more than the entire budget we've ever had in our existence on a year of evaluation and impact metrics. So that's always, you know, another question. And I'm sure it's a question that Berkman, the Berkman Klein Center has to ask itself too. It's like, how much of our resources are we going to dedicate to metrics and how much are we going to try to do things that really just seem like an important thing to do right now that we can't measure? So, yeah, thank you for the question. Yeah. Hi. Um, I was just curious how you selected the theme of transportation and also if you can tell us about any other themes that you're considering for future projects. Yeah, so the theme of transportation was actually came up when we were thinking about a bunch of different themes. And, uh, you know, the themes that we discussed were all related to people that we'd recorded in the first set of 10 shoots. And so James, the cable car driver, is obviously someone who works in transit. And so he was, in a way, the inspiration for uh, the first shoot. Um, and, you know, incidentally, my dad was a limo driver at the time, too. So, uh, so that, was, that was interesting to me, but that wasn't, that wasn't why we ended up choosing it. But transportation workers, you know, truck drivers, biggest job in the United States, or one of the biggest jobs in the United States, probably going away. Uh, and it's just an interesting theme. At the same time, we were looking at people with disabilities all over the world, because we, Rumi uses a wheelchair to get around Tokyo. We also were thinking about doing a series about students all over the world. We also, and Matthew Bowles participated in this, we did a workshop about endangered uh, language speakers to try to feature speakers of endangered languages around the world. And uh, another one that we looked at is people whose lives are being affected by climate change all over the world. And those might be potential future ones, but it just happened that, um, you know, unfortunately, in the nonprofit world, there's a lot of following the money. And, uh, and so we submitted grant proposals, and the one we got was to do the Lives in Transit series. So we're still hoping that we might get funding to do the others. Probably have time for one more, if anybody has them. Okay. okay. Oh. Just a quick comment on the, uh, as you were talking about Bill Clinton, I was thinking about Madeleine Albright, uh, Bill Clinton's Secretary of State, telling Katie Couric in that nationally televised 
program that she thought the deaths of Iraqi children under the sanctions regime was worth it. I'm sort of wondering, maybe there's another target audience for, for what you're doing here. Yeah. My question is yeah. virtual reality and uh, augmented reality and what you see happening. Yeah, so I did a workshop on virtual reality production and it's still, even though it's really hot right now, it would be really hard to do a 24 hour VR day in a life of a person. So if we wanted to take global lives into VR, we would probably have to change the 24 hour format. And that's a discussion that we've had over the years. There have been tons of people who have said, you should do 24 minutes, you should do two minutes, you should do two minutes and 40 seconds, you should do 100 seconds, you should do, um, you know, just focus on a person and forget about this uh, whole idea of 24 hours. But then, um, you know, funny, it, another producer of mine has said, like, that's the unique thing about Global Lives. It's a unique challenge to do the 24 hours. And, uh, and we actually have, Dan's a marathon runner. This is kind of like the filmmaking marathon, in a sense, of producing 24 hours of usable footage. It is exhausting, and it takes everything that any film crew can possibly uh, you know, muster to, to get it done. Um, so that's interesting. So I don't think we want to abandon the 24-hour format. Uh, I have... Um, I unfortunately am one of the, I, I heard it's like 10% of people that suffer from horrible headaches whenever I put on a VR headset. So the medium itself doesn't have a direct appeal to me uh, just because of that immediate issue. But like to give you an idea of the computational difficulty, you know, you might have one of these arrays that has a dozen or more cameras on it. And so you're talking about 10 times as much data. So you're talking about many terabytes of data for, uh, like our whole collection is, is still under about 20 terabytes right now. And most of that is on the internet archive, actually. They've hosted it for free for us very generously. I know the Berkman Klein Center has long-standing collaborations with the internet archive. Uh, so just, you know, the data, the uploading, the post-production, translating in virtual reality, all of that's really, really complicated. I, have, I was approached by people at Google, actually, uh, about doing a version of Global Lives for um, a new camera array that Google was developing. Uh, and I was, I was willing to consider it, but it never went anywhere. So I, I'm, st I'm still willing to consider it, and maybe it means, the thing I was thinking about is, because the, the other problem with VR, with a 360 camera, is you can't have a camera operator carrying it around. It has to be stationary. And the funny thing, I don't know if any of you know this about VR, but when you're doing kind of documentary-style VR, you go and you put this orb-like camera on a, on a stick, and then you run away, and you hide behind something, and then you click record, because otherwise you're in the image, right? And so that, you know, you have to leave that orb somewhere. So do we leave it in someone's kitchen? Do we leave it in the middle of the dining room table? Do we, there, are, there are a lot of options. And 